God desires all men to be saved. I know that our election was based on God's foreknowledge, not of how we behaved, but how we responded to his sovereign grace. But I want to tell you, in eternity past, this whole plan began as God put his eye upon you and put his gracious hand upon your life. And I can tell you today, if you're worried about whether or not you're elect, it's this simple. The elect are the whosoever wills and the non-elect are the whosoever won't. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of 2 Timothy, which we began last week. And as we move past the Apostle Paul's introductory remarks in chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, we find now Paul encouraging Timothy, who we've previously found to be somewhat of an introvert, to not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ or of Paul himself. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he begins reading from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore... Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phrygellus and Homogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Now, in our last time, we looked at the introduction to this letter in the first seven verses. And we carefully examined those factors that God used to make Paul who Paul was and to make Timothy whom Timothy was. God has forever established certain principles by which he shapes a man or a woman to be the person that he created them to be. In Timothy's case, we looked at his family his friends, his faculty, his fortitude. And we saw how those four principles are still at work today in making men and women to be godly people. But beginning here in verse 8, the apostle now turns from the varied factors that contributed to the making of Timothy to the truth of the gospel. And he spells out Timothy's responsibility in relation to the gospel. Now in verse 8, before he defines the gospel, he encourages us not to be ashamed of it. Notice the very first word. He says, therefore. Now, whenever you see that word, your mind should go back to what has just been said. He is giving a response to what God has done in Timothy's life. He's saying, in light of whom 
how God has called you, how God has shaped you, how God has made you and gifted you. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And so suffering, rather than shame, is to be Timothy's ministry. Now in the world's eyes, he was frail, young, timid, weak. But in God's eyes, he was gifted, he was called, he was molded. And so the Lord, therefore, has called him to suffer in suffering for the gospel. That's the link between these two paragraphs. Now, what in particular is it that Timothy is not to be ashamed of? Well, I wanted to highlight three things from this verse. If you have your note-taking outline, pull it out. It's there in the back of your bulletin. Three things that Timothy is not to be ashamed of and three things that we're not to be ashamed of. First, by way of introduction, we are not to be ashamed of Christ's name. We're not to be ashamed of his name or his testimony. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Now, all of us who are saved have been called to be witnesses for Christ, and we need to be ready to be fools, if necessary, for Christ's sake. Our Christian witness, our testimony, is about identifying ourselves with the person and name of Jesus Christ. Our Lord himself said, you shall be my witnesses. And being a witness for Christ may mean being ridiculed. It might mean being ostracized, being made fun of, being even physically persecuted. And let me say to you, young people especially, if you like to be liked, God will never use you. If you like to be liked, you will never have a significant impact for Jesus Christ. Because if you like to be liked, you'll be forced to follow the culture instead of the dictates of God's Word. Now, Paul is about ready to remind Timothy, we'll study it soon, he says in the third chapter, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not an option. It's an opportunity. It's a promise of all Christians who will live godly. And so being criticized, being unpopular, is an occupational hazard of being a true witness for Christ. It's all a part of identifying with his name. Hey, listen, you can hardly be a member of this church and not experience some kind of ridicule and some kind of persecution. So first, we're not to be ashamed of Christ's name. Secondly, we are not to be ashamed of Christ's people. If Timothy is not to be afraid or ashamed of suffering, neither should he be ashamed of Paul. Notice again as we continue, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. The Apostle Paul knew that it was possible to be proud of Christ but to be ashamed of God's people, to be embarrassed, to be associated with them. Do you know that there are some people who join certain churches because these certain churches supposedly have the beautiful people in them or the shakers and the movers of a particular community? May I remind you that Christ's true church has never been that way. Christ's true church has a spectrum of people from every realm of the culture. Paul reminded the Corinthians, For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. He didn't say not any, but not many. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world 
to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen and the things which are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. Listen, do you know that there are people who come even to this church for the Bible teaching because they like the teaching directly from Holy Scripture, but they will never become a member of this church because they are afraid and ashamed to associate themselves with the people of God. They know what this church stands for and what this pastor is about, but they're not willing to call this church their church home because of the embarrassment it might bring. Hey, listen to me. If you choose to live holy, if you choose to live totally sold out to Jesus Christ in this generation, you will not be liked. There will be people who will oppose you. And there are people in this community who think that I'm weird. They think that this church is somewhat weird because we take our Christianity far too serious. And so if you're a Christian and you're identified with this church, you'll be lumped in with us. And that might not be politically correct because we're everything in this county. We're rich, we're poor. We got doctors and we got trash collectors. We got white, black, Hispanic, Korean, Filipino, Japanese. We place a strong emphasis on the fundamentals of the faith, on the sanctity of human life, on the importance of the family, on the gender distinctions that God has made in the body of Christ. And we're not afraid to call people to live holy and righteously. And the world who wants a form of Christianity in our day, but who deny its power, don't want that kind of Christianity. And so some, even Christians, are ashamed to be identified with us. So they come for the teaching, but not to commit themselves to the people. Now, this is not a new problem. Because this chapter is going to tell us that Paul was despised by Christian people. They were ashamed of him because of his radical Christianity. It appears in verse 15 that Paul was rearrested, this time put in chains for execution. And basically all of the church in Asia abandoned him with one bright exception, Onesiphorus. So he tells Timothy, Timothy, don't you follow suit. If everyone in that Roman church abandons me, don't you abandon me. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Now, in the eyes of the world, he wasn't Christ's prisoner. He was Nero's prisoner. Nero had him arrested and set his execution. But Paul doesn't call himself Nero's prisoner. He calls himself Christ's prisoner, his prisoner. Why? Because in reality, he knew that God was sovereign, that the providence of God extends to every detail of his life, and he was captive in that prison only because in God's timing, he was supposed to be captive. He was in prison only because Christ allowed them to take his apostle and to arrest him. And so first, we are not to be ashamed of Christ's name. Second, we are not to be ashamed of Christ's people. Third, Timothy, you're not to be ashamed of Christ's gospel. We're not to be ashamed of the gospel, but rather we should be willing to take our share of suffering for it. Look again in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Weak as Timothy was in himself, he could be fortified by the power of God so that he could suffer for preaching the gospel. Listen, if you start opening your lips 
consistently, regularly standing for Christ, for what's right, for what's true, and sharing Jesus Christ with people, when you preach and share only one way of salvation, when you preach salvation through a blood-stained cross, there are certain intellectuals who will oppose you. There are certain people, when you invite them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, when you invite them, it will arouse opposition. And so Paul is inviting Timothy to suffer and suffering for the gospel. And so these are three ways in which Timothy might be tempted to feel ashamed. And these are three ways in which we can be tempted. The name of Christ, the people of Christ with whom we are to openly identify, of whom we are if we are truly His, and the gospel of Christ to which we've been entrusted to spread. And it's a strong temptation in that day, and it's a strong temptation in this day. If it were not, our Lord never would have said, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man also will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels." We can, be attempt, we can be tempted, be ashamed of Christ, of his people, and of his gospel. And God knows that very often man, even Christian men and women, are more sensitive to public opinion than they are to the way, the God, the way God thinks. They are tempted to bow down to people's favor like a reed shaken by the wind, in Jesus' words. And so to put some steel in this man's heart, to put some solidity in this man's spine, Paul gives him a doctrinal basis for not being ashamed. He reminds Timothy of the greatness of the gospel. And if you can grasp the gospel as it's spelled out in verses 9 and 10, you will never be ashamed to share it as he explains in verses 11 to 18. God knows that the way you behave is predicated on the way you think and that right doctrine always brings about proper behavior. So let's consider first the main features of the gospel. I want you to notice the link from the end of verse 8 to the beginning of verse 9. We're called to suffer for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us. It is absolutely impossible to speak of salvation without speaking of the gospel because the two are inextricably linked in the Bible. The gospel is fundamentally good news about our salvation. It is the good news, what he says in verse 10, of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And again, the two words are brought into juxtaposition. Let me remind you, even at the birth of Christ, gospel and Savior, gospel and salvation were linked. Those angels appeared to those shepherds and said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news. Literally, I bring you gospel. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Gospel and salvation are inseparable. Paul, on his first missionary journey, as he spoke to the people of Pisidia and Antioch, preached the message or the gospel of his salvation. When he wrote the church at Ephesus, he reminded them of the gospel of your salvation. When he addressed the church at Rome, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Those two words are always linked together. They belong together. And so the gospel that Paul first preached 
to the Galatians church. It's the same gospel that he writes of here in his last letter in all of the New Testament that he will write. There has always been one gospel from beginning to end. Now, what I want you to see here in these verses that follow is something about this salvation that the gospel brings. Three things in particular. I want us to think about the character of our salvation, namely, what is salvation? Secondly, I want us to think about the source of salvation, that is, from where does it flow? And third, I want us to consider the ground of our salvation, that is, on what does it rest? So first, the character of our salvation. Now, there are three clauses in verses 9 and 10 that describe the character of our salvation. And I want to bring those together in your mind. In verse 9, he says he saved us. Also in verse 9, he says he called us with a holy calling. And then in verse 10, he says he brought life and immortality to light. That is the character of our salvation. First, he saved us. What did he save us from? He saved us from the wrath that our sin so justly deserves. He brought release from the punishment of sin. We call that in the New Testament forgiveness. But salvation, understand, is more than forgiveness. Salvation is given in such a way that not only does it bring forgiveness, but simultaneously it brings a call with a holy calling. God has called us with a holy calling. And if you've been saved, you've been called to be holy. And friend, if you are not called to be holy this morning, if you do not have a desire in your heart today to be like Jesus Christ, I can tell you on the authority of Holy Scripture, you've never been saved. Now, people all the time separate conversion with a, from a call to holiness. But understand, in the New Testament, they are inseparable. I meet people every week who tell me they've been saved. They can articulate the gospel of salvation by grace through faith, but they have no passion and no desire for holiness. I want to tell you, dear brother, such people have never been saved. When God saves you, he puts a new desire, a new passion, a new want to, to live differently for Christ. Real salvation, true salvation, puts a holy calling on your life. But if holiness is an integral part of salvation, so is immortality. Again, in verse 10, Christ Jesus is the one who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. There's a future dimension of our salvation that is yet to be experienced when Christ will redeem our physical bodies. Paul spoke of it to the Corinthians in these words, for this perishable must put on imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. God saved us from the penalty of sin. He forgave us. He declared us righteous. That's known as justification. God is saving us from the power of sin because he's put a holy calling on our life as he conforms us to the image of Christ. That's called sanctification. And someday, God will save us from the very presence of sin when this mortal body will put on immortality. That's called glorification. Forgiveness, holiness, immortality are three aspects of this great salvation which he gives. Now, the term salvation needs to be delivered 
from the cheap way in which we use it in this century. It's a majestic word, and it's comprehensive in its scope. First, by pardoning us of our sin and declaring us righteous. Secondly, by conforming us to Christ's image. And thirdly, when we are completed in heaven with this new life. Now, that's the character of our salvation, whereby God justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies us. But Paul doesn't stop there. He not only speaks of the character of our salvation, he also reminds us of the source of our salvation. From where does this salvation flow? Well, look at the end of verse 9. He plainly says that salvation is not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and the grace which was granted in Christ Jesus from all eternity. In other words, if you trace the river of salvation all the way back to its source, it brings you into eternity past, ever before God created man, ever before he spoke the sun, moon, and stars into existence. The Greek text, pro chronon ionion, literally before eternal times. The King James renders it before the world began. The New English Bible puts it from all eternity. Phillips paraphrases it before time began. God's purpose in salvation began in eternity past. The source of our salvation was not according to our works. There was nothing in eternity past that you had ever done because God hadn't even made you yet. It was not according to our works. This decision to save you was made ever before God spoke you into existence, ever before you did anything good or bad. The source of salvation goes back to God's gracious purpose. Now, please do not ask me to fully ex explain the doctrine of election because I do not fully understand it. And you ought to be weary, even leery, of anyone who is so careful to systematize it, as some do. But let me tell you, while I cannot fully explain it, I know it is a biblical doctrine, because the Bible says He chose us, He elected us before the foundation of the world. I also know that God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to salvation. I know that 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5 says that God desires all men to be saved. I know that our election was based on God's foreknowledge, not of how we behaved, but how we responded to His sovereign grace. But I want to tell you, in eternity past, this whole plan began as God put His eye upon you and put His gracious hand upon your life. And I can tell you today, if you're worried about whether or not you're elect, it's this simple, the elect are the whosoever wills and the non-elect are the whosoever wants. Now, God mentions this to give us a deep sense of security, knowing that our salvation does not rest in us, but in God. And interestingly, whenever God mentions the doctrine of election, he does so in order to engender in us humility and a sense of gratitude for his kindness. So having explained the character of our salvation and the source of our salvation, Paul goes on to explain the ground of our salvation. Verse 10 explains the ground of our salvation on which it rests, namely the historical work of Jesus Christ when he appeared the first time. Look at verse 10. 
But now that is this purpose that God has in saving us has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Our salvation is firmly grounded on the historical work of Christ when he came the first time, when he appeared, epiphania, when the epiphany came, when God broke into time and human space through the incarnation of Christ. Do you see what Paul is doing? He's moving from eternity past in verse 9 where God in his grace determined the plan into time and space in verse 10 where God's plan is enacted. He appeared, he broke into human history, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death. Christ did two things. The first thing he did when he brought salvation, when he appeared, is he abolished death. Secondly, the verse tells us he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's the second thing he did. First, he abolished death. Death, as you know, is the wage that sin pays. For the wages of sin is death. Death summarizes our human predicament as a result of the fall and as a result of sin. Death is the grim penalty as described in each facet that death takes. Just like salvation, which is a big comprehensive word that has at least three major dimensions to it, even so death is a very big word in scripture and in the same fashion it has three dimensions to it. There is physical death, which is separation of the soul from the body. There is spiritual death, which is the separation of the soul from God. And there is the eternal death, the second death, which is the separation of both body and soul from God forever. All three forms of death were abolished by Christ. Christ came and he abolished death. Now think your way through this. In what sense did Christ abolish death? Because everywhere we look, we see it. I mean, what does Paul mean? He abolished death. Certainly, he cannot mean he eliminated death because both the Bible and experience tells us otherwise. I mean, look all around you. There's lost people everywhere who have no new life. They have no peace. They have no communion with God. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are walking in spiritual death. Open the daily newspaper. Every day there's new people who are listed in the local obituary. They've died physically. Not to mention the Bible is very clear. Twice over, it speaks of the second death that all who do not know Christ will face in an eternal liquid lake of fire without God. And so Paul, with a shout of victory, says Christ has abolished death. And he uses an interesting word, the word abolish, kartegeo in the original. If you look it up in the lexicons, it means to nullify, to make inoperative, to make ineffective. Paul is reminding us that Christ has rendered death inoperative. He has made it powerless. He has defeated death in relation to the Christian. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? It's gone. It's been abolished by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And those who make Jesus Lord of their lives will never have to worry about spiritual death. There is such hope in the promise of eternal life. And if you don't have the assurance that if you were to die today that you'd go to heaven, let us send you a pamphlet and message entitled, Would You Like God as Your Friend? It's free and available by calling Search the Scriptures at 877 787 
888-357-7478. Just call and ask for Would You Like God as Your Friend? And for a copy of today's message, The Christian and the Gospel, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting message 2TM2. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl continues his look at the Christian and the Gospel. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.